Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. Can you hear us? Yes. Yes. Great, great, great. Okay. So it's very, very good to see all of you. We love this part. We love sitting there scrolling, seeing your faces. I just was trying to do that again, and then I just deleted all your faces. Now I see your faces again. So good to see all of you. Um, I want to thank you for your uh, prayers and for your prayer requests. You know, one could understand, one could fathom perhaps you not doing that anymore, saying they're, they've got their hands filled with Gogumagog, Armageddon, the final war, uh, what, what little old us with an intestinal infection, and the answer is yes, that's right. The prayers matter, and um, don't stop sending them. We can still pray for each other, even from these dark places, and perhaps it makes the prayers and the blessings even stronger. So send them to Ardell, keep them coming to us, and I want to thank you for that. And now to start this fellowship, I want to introduce my commander, my best friend, <laughs> Jeremy Gimpel. Okay. Jeremy. All right. Let me, uh, we had some issues last time with like the, the camera, the thing, we're going to straighten it out and we're going to try to make it make as much sense as possible. Okay. Um, you know, since the beginning of this fellowship, since really the beginning of broadcasting, we've always been talking about preparing for judgment day. And, um, you know, the Torah starts with judgment, it starts with Noah and the flood and it ends with Armageddon. And it's like these two bookends. And the question is like, why does the Torah start off with this like, catastrophe and end with this global catastrophe and what is that about and it's because judgment day is going to come for all of us and israel right now is experiencing its own judgment day and all the preparation that we have put into our lives where we're at now is where we're at now ari and i are spending hours every day wearing these heavy vests bulletproof things, walking in the desert, patrolling with our ranger. Um, whatever shape we are in now is the shape that we're in now. And physically, that's true. Spiritually, that's true. Emotionally, that's true. Our families, that's true. And, you know, if it is a judgment day, then we really need to take a cheshbon nefesh. We need to go inside and kind of take stock and I feel like that has always been the power of the Jewish people. The power of the Jewish people has always been whenever catastrophe hits, we're not there blaming the Hamas, but we realize that the Hamas is just a stick in the hand of God. And, you know, when I, I think Ari said this, that when, you know, you hit a dog with a stick, so the dog will bite the stick, not realizing the stick isn't doing anything. It's the person that's hitting you with the stick, but the dog is just biting at the stick that's hitting it. And so right now, a judgment has come upon Israel, and all of us, those that are inside Israel and those who are outside of Israel, really need to take stock. We need to look around because for a moment, like pure evil was unleashed on the world, and that evil still exists as there are toddlers and elderly people still being held captive. Six-month-old babies are taken hostage. I don't remember any time in world history that that just happened. And there are people that are condemning Israel's ground rescue mission in Gaza. And I wonder, you know, which one of the two goals do they oppose? Retrieving the 220 plus innocent Israeli hostages held by the Hamas or destroying the globally designated terrorist organization Hamas? Which one of those two goals are they against? And the fact that they are against those two goals can only say one thing. Evil has now been exposed. And you think about the bedfellows, queers for Palestine, the alt-right KKK, Muslim jihadists, they've all come together from right to left, and they've all united against what? Against the Jewish people. And, you know, the Jews, we're just the, the canary in the mine. That's, that's the saying. It always starts with the Jew, but we may be the beginning, but we're never the end. And now I'm watching a hundred thousand uh, pro Hamas people storm storming the streets of London. London, that's a bigger problem for London than it is for Israel right now. And evil is now rearing its head because never that I remember in my lifetime has evil been so clearly manifest. And the people that are still chanting for that evil, 
What do we do with that? And so I looked to the Tanakh and I realized that Israel's um, entire existence is a miracle. I mean, we have um, the Muslim population of the world is 24% of the world population is Muslim today. 24%. One out of four people pretty much defines themselves as Muslims. But this is really important. Islam is actually not the problem. Islam is not the problem because there are Muslims in Dubai that are still condemning the Hamas. Islam, in fact, took these Arabian people and tamed them a little bit. Before Islam, there was Molech, where they were just sacrificing their own children by burning them to their god. And so it's it's something is much it's much deeper than a religious war. There's something fundamental here. And Netanyahu, for the first time, actually called them Amalek. And I thought that that was a good sign because that goes now deep into the collective consciousness of the people of Israel, that when we say Amalek, we mean Amalek. And when you say evil and Amalek together, we have to remember that we have to wipe it out. But before we go out to war, what did Gideon do in the army? Because Gideon was just 300 men. I mean, that's where he was going out to war with. And he went up against an entire nation. And so here we are. People are saying, Israel doesn't have enough PR. Well, Jews are 0.2 of 1% of the world population. And the Muslims are 24% of the world population. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of like how I root for the Atlanta Falcons. And I'll watch them lose time and time again. So when you have just a fan base of 24% of the world population against 0.2% of 1%, like it's less than a quarter of 1%, no matter what our Hasbara is, whatever the social media is, like we don't really have enough of a voice to win, but neither did Gideon. But what did Gideon do? What did he do before he went out to war? He first cleaned up the idolatry within himself. He first cleaned up his own camp. He looked inside. And that's really what Israel needs to do now. Israel needs to look inside and clean up our own idols before we think we can really go out to war. Now, I want to tell you guys a story. There was a family here, members of our fellowship from Ohio, and they came to visit us on the farm uh, and they stayed with us for Sukkot. We have like a little area now where volunteers can come and people can come and work on the farm. And it's kind of like a um, an inexpensive way of coming to be a part of what we're doing. Um, and they wanted to come and they wanted to work and they really made our farm so much better. They helped us so much. Just this one family with all their children. And they actually came back again in the middle of the war. And they said they wanted to come back one more time before they went back to America and we were just so happy to see them. Our friends, our children became friends with their children. And in the middle of a conversation, um, the father of the home came to me. His name happens to be Abraham. And he says, listen, I want you to know. And, I, and I, I'm only saying this as a friend, Jeremy. I don't mean to judge you. And I don't mean to sound arrogant or I don't mean to sound mean. But I just want to tell you as a righteous non-Jew that's come from outside the land, that's come here. And what have I done here? I've just volunteered. I've just tried to help the people of God, tried to help Israel. Like, how much better can you get than this family? You can't. They are the best of the best, the cream of the crop. They are literally, God must just love them. And he said, I want you to know that the other day I went up to the Temple Mount and I was walking around Jerusalem and the Temple Mount was so powerful for me. And I want you to know that as I walked around Jerusalem, I didn't see a city of righteousness and you're called to be God's people and Jerusalem is called to be a city of righteousness. And I just saw a lot of Los Angeles in Jerusalem. I saw a lot of New York in Jerusalem. You know, you're God's chosen people chosen to build God's kingdom and Jerusalem is his capital. And right now, Jerusalem is not what it should be. And I really took that to heart. And I think that Israel now has a lot of tshuva that we need to do because obviously everything that's happening to us is happening for us. And so a lot of things are happening. Thousands of Jews are leaving Israel now. All those people that were protesting against the judicial reform and they were sort of secular, nihilist, not really Jewish in their identity and they wanted Israel to be some sort of Hebrew-speaking Canada, they're all leaving the country because if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the Torah, why would you be here putting your life at risk with these genocidal Hamas terrorists and sending your children into the army? And at the same time, 
over 200,000 Israelis have flown into the war zone to try to enlist in the army, that have tried to make Aliyah, that are trying to volunteer here. And so imagine what a sifting process is happening. Those that are leaving and those that are coming. And so an internal process is happening here within the people of Israel. It's like a sifting process. I think it is the prophet Malachi that says that we're going to be refined like gold and silver. The way you refine gold and silver is you put it in the fire. And then the impurities fall away. And then finally, pure gold comes out. And so Israel right now, if we really see, um, try to see the world with, you know, Messiah eyes, that we're being put in the fire now and a refinement is happening, but we need to refine ourselves in this process. Like we will not be able to go out to war 300 people against a nation or David against Goliath until we clean out the idols inside us. When we really internalize that this is far more a spiritual war than a physical war. And the physical war is just a manifestation of some inner process that's happening to us on an individual level, on a national level, till we get our heads straight. And, you know, sometimes it takes a non-Jew to kind of knock you into place. So that happened to me with the Sink family a little bit. And I saw a statement made by President Donald Trump. And he said, if you spill a drop of American blood, we will spill a gallon of yours. And I was like, that is a healthy, strong leadership statement to make. He's not saying that if you drop a drop, I'll drop a drop and we'll have a proportional response. He's like, no, you've touched my people. You've hurt me and my family. We are going to go to war. And so Israel right now is like, it's something's happening to us. I've been watching speeches that are being given to the heads of these battalions. And what I'm going to do very soon is I'm going to be translating them and I'm going to be sending them out to members of our fellowship. You know, we have now a new WhatsApp group and we're Ari and I are sending out videos and Tehillah all the time. If you want to join that group, because there's some things I can't share on every platform because the fellowship has its own purpose, but there's so many things that I want to say that are beyond the scope of this fellowship. And I was like, oh, how do I say it? I can't share everything. There's just not even enough time. So thousands of people have joined this WhatsApp group already. And what I want to do is I'm going to give these epic speeches given by these generals in the army. They're not generals. They're like, you know, um, let's say officers of hundreds that are speaking in front of hundreds of Jewish soldiers saying the most amazing thing, saying, I stand here today before the soldiers of King David. And now we are tapping into the Maccabee inside of us. And it's like tapping into this wellspring of Jewish history that now is soon going to be unleashed on the enemies of the world. And that's really what they are. The Hamas and this jihadist ideology isn't an enemy of Israel. It is an enemy of the world. And, you know, over Shabbat in our hallway, we have like pictures of all of the different family adventures that we've gone on. Because Tehillah and I, we've been blessed to be invited to speak around the world. And so we take little mementos and little moments and to remember them and we have one picture of us in South Africa that we were invited right this last Passover. And I had this dream the other night where we were in the middle of this safari and we had seen the wild dogs, which are really almost extinct, so rare to see them. And there was no one around us and they were right up on the road and you could almost touch them except you don't want to touch them because their teeth are razor sharp. And I'm looking around at the beautiful Kruger Park and just like, wow, the world could be so beautiful and you could just imagine the waterfalls and the birds and the butterflies and just and then there's this demonic force that's like kill kill rape behead violence dominate kill it's like whoa whoa what is that though god created such a perfect beautiful amazing world and there's a force in this amalek that just wants chaos and destruction and who does it attack first? When it manifested in the Nazis, it attacked the Jew first. Now it's manifesting as Iran, Hezbollah, and the Hamas, and all these nations that are chanting and cheering for it. So right now they're saying, kill the Jew. But right now, Ayatollah Khomeini, the head chief leader 
of the Iranian regime, really the head of the snake, the leader of the Hamas, said, I want you all to know that Judgment Day is coming for America. All of this war that's happening in Gaza, it's being orchestrated by America, not Israel. America is the real enemy. He just put that out a half, maybe half day ago. I just saw it two hours before the fellowship. And so it's a wake up call for us because like the alarm went off on our ear. But as it's in our country going off now, for those that are listening, it really is a shofar that's being blast for everyone around the world. And so then what is the call to action? The call to action is the call of Gideon. And Gideon first went inside, cleaned up the idolatry in his home, cleaned up the idolatry within his soldiers, and then strong and united, they were able to combat the evil. But right now, at least for me, I know that my focus has been so enraged at the enemy. I've been so upset. I, I never in my life have I been so hateful. Like, you know, it says those who love the Lord hate evil. Okay, I must love the Lord a lot because I've never been filled with so much rage and anger and hatred towards these demonic human renoids. I don't know what else to call them. But now I realize, and really mostly because Tehillah has been smacking me around, that that is not productive. What I need to be doing right now is to be going inside and cleaning up my own house and then prepare myself what's soon to come. Because I believe that the first domino has now fallen. And it's just a matter of time. There are ancient traditions that say that Gogu Magog will start on Sukkot and Mashiach will appear on Passover. Now that's an ancient mystical tradition, but pretty remarkable that this war started on the last day of the holiday. And if you think about it, Passover, that's a pretty nice date. And Ari's been saying Passover now for years. Two Passovers in a row, Ari's been running around the farm, blowing the shofar. And he's like, all right, okay. I'm not going to do that anymore. But I'm like, wow, dude, you were really close. You were like one Passover early. That's really good. I mean, on the span of thousands of years, that's really close to the bullseye. And so I think that that is healthy, that all of us keep that in mind, that we now have a long road ahead of us. We have months of this battle because it's exhausting i haven't slept one solid night since the war broke out and that's not good for me psychologically that's not good for me physically but i sleep with the radio from the army right on my ear so if anything happens i'm woken up the problem is that stuff on that radio happens all the time that's not that important but it wakes me up anyway so for a month now i haven't really slept but I'm like, okay, well, we have months to go. So we really need to pace ourselves. We need to know that this is maybe a long haul. And the cleanup that it's doing is um, a process. You know, you got to clean your home for Pesach. And so I think that right now, what I want to say to everyone that I meet is that it's time for Chula now. It's really time for unity and it's time for Chuva. We have to repent. We have to return to Hashem. We have to become stronger. Why are we showing videos of weddings? One of the fellowship members asked us that. I mean, there's so many things to show. We could show you cool IDF operations, but we're showing all these IDF soldiers that are choosing to get married in the middle of the war because that's what this war is all about. We are the force of light. We are the force of life. And in the middle of this war, there's a cult that worships death. And here we are battling that with making more Jewish homes, more Jewish future, more light, more love in the world. And so that's what we have to do. We have to strengthen ourselves with love, strengthen ourselves with light. And, you know, we've built our ark, but I can tell around my house, I'm still like going around with the hammer and I'm still fixing it along the way. Even though at this time, the flood has already come. And Ari says to me all the time, he's like, listen, you, there's like hands are off the reins at this point. Like the roller coaster has already set in motion and things are going to go up and things are going to spin around. And now all we can do is trust that the ark that we've built is going to bring us to Jerusalem and land on the shore. And so with that, I want to introduce Tehillah, who made an effort to come here 
to broadcast live today. And so she is, I can't even tell you, busy isn't the word. Worked to like candle at both ends until there's just the black of the wick. That's all that there is. But she still came here uh, to be with us, to be together, to share with you. And, um, you know, every time I think that I know her, she somehow reveals a new power, a new strength, a new insight, a new wisdom. And so she is the most awesome. And so she's a gift to us. She's a gift to the fellowship. So I'm going to move over here and let her sit down and share with you now. Hi, everyone. And thank you, Jeremy, for those kind words. And uh, it's always nice to come live on the fellowship because I get to figure out what of all of my different scoldings of Jeremy he's actually been listening to. So good job, Jeremy. You've been listening. <laughs> uh, thank you for all of the encouraging messages that we've been receiving, the prayers. And I just have been feeling so wrapped up in just an overwhelming feeling of love from all of our fellowship community. I can't express how much that means to me, especially at a time like this. Uh, for you, you know, for those of you who've been following the series of videos that I've been putting out. You know, I did not really mean to do that. It just sort of happened because Jeremy stuck a camera in front of my face and I felt at the time that I had nothing to say, but whatever came out just came out and it was not to any credit of my own. Um, but as these Torah ideas were developing uh, in relation to the you know current situation that we're in, it's become uh, a series really on the war between Israel and Hamas through the eyes of different biblical heroes. So first we discussed no seeing how the sages flesh out the meaning of the first appearance of a truly evil civilization that unbelievably the Torah calls Hamas. And that's what, you know, what does that look like? And how does Noah fortify himself against that? And then we studied Psalm 140, where we saw David's approach to both the direct evil that he calls Hamas and uh, the indirect evil of the people who support that kind of, you know, horrible atrocity. And it was remarkable to see just how much Every appearance of the word Hamas in the Tanakh, in the, in the Bible, really speaks to our time. And in the latest video I put out at the end of last week, it was discussing Sarah's approach in this week's Torah portion to Hamas, where Hashem tells Avram he has to listen to Sarah. And we see that essentially Yishmael has a choice to either be constantly at war with Yitzhak or to accept the abundant blessings that Hashem gave him Um as long as he just respects that the covenant of the land of Israel goes through Yitzchak. And then the Torah leaves this sort of open option for his repentance that we see at the end of the story when Yitzchak and Yishmael bury Avram together, meaning they there's this option of making things right. And, you know, so what I've shared in, in, in the past, and I'm sure you guys are aware, is that in the traditional and the Kabbalistic mystical view, Yishmael represents the Arabian Middle Eastern world. But on the other hand, we know that Esav in the Jewish tradition represents the civilization that was started by Rome, and that would eventually become European culture and Western culture in general, including America now as the greatest kind of Western empire and representative of that civilization. So, you know, after discussing Yishmael's choice of how he needs to behave in the biblical perspective, naturally, I was drawn, uh, you know, this sort of like, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to figure out what to talk about. It just sort of came to me that I really needed to study the prophecy of Ovadia. You guys might know him as Obadiah, but I'm going to stick with the Hebrew that's easier for me. So Ovadia is just one chapter long. He's the shortest book in the in the Bible. And he discusses the fate and the choices that are going to stand before Asav. And so in the spirit of this kind of progression that I've been trying to develop or that's being developed, you know, through me, uh, I want to look at his prophecy for a moment. Um, now the book of Ovadia is really cryptic because we don't know who he is and we don't know the time frame that he's even prophesying about. The sages tend to think that he was a convert from Edom, from Asaph, and that he lived around the time of the King Ahab. And there's a lot of theories about what time he's prophesying about. Some people say that his prophecies already came to pass in the first temple. Some people say it came to pass at least mostly in the second temple. And some people say that this is true for all future times. Now, the way I look at it is however you're going to cut this up, the fact that it was included in the Bible, even if some parts have already come into fruition and other times in the past, if it is in the Bible, it means it has eternal significance. And so it's incumbent upon us to study and try to understand Ovadia, who's presenting for us the challenge and the choice that's going to face the Western world in end times. And 
you know, it's just remarkable when you start to read because right away you see things that just pop out at us as speaking to our times. Like right when you get to verse one, it says, the vision of Ovadia, so said the Lord God concerning Edom, that's Asaph, we have heard tidings from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations, arise and let us rise up against them in war. So at the very outset, we hear we're talking about a time where there's going to be nations conspiring together to rise up in war, somehow relating to Israel. And, you know, when we look now at the different alliances between Russia and Iran and Hezbollah between the United States and Western allies, it's not far to, you know, it's not hard to be able to relate with these kind of clouds of war that are forming. And if we go to verse four in Ovadia, if we're not sure who the prophet Ovadia is talking to, I'm going to let you guys take a wild guess. Think about these symbolisms for a second, okay, guys? If you go up high like an eagle, and if you place your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Eagles, stars, spangled banner, reminding anybody of anything. It's like the prophet is saying, flashing sign, guys, stars and eagles, we're talking to you. You're going to have, you're going to have something happening that you're going to have to think about. And so then the prophet goes on to describe, you know, terrible destruction that can befall Asav. And then he tells us in verse 10 why. He says, because the violence of your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off, cut off forever. On the day that you stood afar, on the day that strangers captured his soldiers and foreigners came into his cities and on Jerusalem, they cast lots. You too are like one of them. What is the prophet saying to us? We see again here that the translation isn't telling us the whole story because you guys are going to fall off your chair when you hear this. In the English translation, it says, because of the violence of your brother, Jacob, Esau is going to be shamed, but that's not what it says in Hebrew exactly. Once again, in Hebrew, we see the word Hamas. It says, because of the Hamas that befalls your brother, Jacob. And it says that you're going to be ashamed for standing there and watching and not doing anything when his soldiers were captured and the day that strangers came into his gates. Is that not like screaming out to us for our time? Asaph is not being accused of being the one to be taking the captives or going in. That's not what the what Ovadia is telling us. Ovadia is telling us that we have a situation where Asaph is watching all of this happen, meaning the Western world is going to be watching this happen and they're going to be facing the question, are you just going to stand there and put up with it or are you going to do something? And so there's this scenario where this, you know, these eagles and stripes and stars are going to have this question of what is going to be your position. And now, you know, here's the thing. When you see yesterday, like after we came out of Shabbat, we got the news. We got the news that the UN struck down um, uh, uh, a resolution to condemn the, the massacre and the kidnappings. Now you would think, I don't expect that the UN is going to say that they support Israel or, you know, obviously, uh, you know, they're going to be very biased. But I thought that at some point, at least abducting babies, maybe that would be something that the world could have consensus about. Even if they say we're wrong and the Palestinians have all these, you know, claims, fine, fair enough. But at least we can agree not to take babies, right? And then the, imagine the shame of the Western world that they are not able, the UN sitting right there in New York in this, you know, symbolic center of Western culture, not able to even make a clear statement that kidnapping babies is wrong. You can really understand this prophecy because that is so shameful. Imagine the shame on Western culture that they cannot even come to a consensus that you don't kidnap children. And so here's the thing. We know that the you know rule one in prophecy is that good prophecies always have to come true, but bad, bad prophecies can be avoided by doing the right thing. So when Ovadia says that Roman, European, Western, American culture will be ashamed, that doesn't mean they have to do that. It's like a warning. It lays out the options for what we can do, because here's the thing. We know what's going to happen in the end. The prophet says in verse 17, on Mount Zion, there shall be a remnant and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall inherit those who inherit them. We're lucky enough to have read the last page of the book, guys, you know, like everyone else can be sweating and nervous, but we've read the last page. And this 
verse, I think, is a little bit of a wink to our Jewish brothers and sisters in exile, because however bad it might be now for Jews facing Ishmael and Israel, the Tanakh is pretty clear that it's going to be worse for our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters outside of Israel, because the prophet says we're going to be safe in Zion. And it finishes with verse 21, and Savior shall ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Asav, and the Lord shall have a kingdom. Meaning, this is not all doom and gloom to the Western world. The line in the sand is happening right now. And there's going to be a judgment. And Jeremy was saying this earlier, there's going to be a judgment and it's going to be a judgment upon Asa. We already know that Yishmael has shown their true colors, but the Ovadia is telling us that there's going to be a judgment at the end on the Western world. Were you standing on the right side, on the side of truth and goodness and taking part in the unfolding of the destiny of Israel? Or were you on the wrong side? And that judgment I think is, uh, you know, possibly very soon. So with that, I wish you guys blessings and that we all be together to see the kingdom of Hashem reestablished in Sion. Bye guys. Uh, and I'm going to give it over to Ari, my uh, commander, best friend, all that stuff <laughs> Jeremy always says. Probably the greatest mistake I've made since the beginning of this war is agreeing to go right after Tehila. That is not a wise move on anyone's part. Um, okay. Can you hear me? Give me a thumbs up. Okay. Cause the computer just said the USB is not working. Okay, so I guess it is. So um, uh, I have to admit, my my head was not thinking clearly today. My I feel like sometimes I need to just breathe and center myself because uh, when it comes to like supplying ourselves with uh, guns and ammunition and all these different things, it's almost like there's no end to it. At a certain point, you know, I was telling Jeremy, like King David went to war against Goliath. He didn't have one stone, right? He had five. But he didn't have 20. Like, we have to hit some sort of ground where we're like, okay, you know what? It is where it is. We are where we are. And opening a book of Psalms is perhaps just as effective, if not more, than getting all the ceramic plates that we need, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's just finding that balance is a difficult thing for me. And um, there's a lot of balances, a lot of things that have been sort of stressing me. There's so many things I wish I could really share with you also. I really do, but I just know that I shouldn't be saying things like that over the internet broadcast around the world. Who knows who could be watching it? But um, I, I thought I would begin with talking about Gaza, you know, because uh, I was just sent this picture of the IDF flying a flag over Gaza. Tabitha, can you show that picture? Have you seen this this uh, this picture of this video? <laughs> And so, you know, people are sending that around and celebrating it. And, uh, you know, there's tanks on the beaches in Gaza. Here's, a, I don't know if you saw this picture. Have you guys seen these pictures yet? Tabitha, share that picture, please. And so people are celebrating these pictures. And I get it. On some level, I get it. But my heart just won't let me. It won't let me celebrate it. Because it just feels like we're not, we're not getting it yet. It's not, first of all, it's not enough. It's not enough. We, want, we so badly want to celebrate something. But the fact that there's anyone in Hamas that still has a pulse that is still breathing, I can't celebrate until all of them are wiped off the map, until they don't exist anymore, and all of the captives have been brought back to the to the state of Israel, to the land of Israel. And so I, I can't celebrate that, but, but also because I remember that we were in Gaza. I remember being in Gaza, and I'm not talking about in the army. I'm talking that there were, there were thriving Jewish communities in Gaza before 2005. Do you remember that? It was called Gush Katif. Gush Katif. When Israel liberated the ancient Jewish communities of Gaza in 1967. You remember the 67 war, the six day war, the whole world. You know, it was the, I, I was told, so I've told every time I meet someone who was like alive then, who was, uh, you know, I, I, very often I'll say, what was it like? What was it like to be in America then? What was it like to be in Israel then? And I remember my dad saying that when he went to school that next day, there were some Italian kids that would beat him up. They didn't beat him up that next day. They certainly didn't. Jews were held in high esteem. 
and Jews, Jews that had nothing to do with that war, sitting in Valley Stream, New York, they were held in high esteem because of what happened in Israel, because whether we like it or not, every Jew in the world is a reflection or a manifestation of Israel, whether they like it or recognize it or not. And um, and so in 1967, that, that's what it was. And so Israel liberated these ancient Jewish communities and these brave Jews went down and started settling the land. And the Arabs in the region laughed at them and said that it would be impossible to really do anything in Gaza. It was empty, parched, desert sand dunes. Nothing was there. Uh, but what the Arabs didn't know was that the prophets of Israel foretold that when the Jews return to the desert, it will blossom like a Chabad Selet. Right? Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. The arid desert shall be glad, the, the wilderness shall rejoice, and shall blossom like a rose. It's actually not a rose, it's a Chabad Selet, but that is the translation that I've been getting. But anyways... Um, it's been a, a lily. But anyways, and within just a number of years, the innovative pioneers of Gush Katif made an oasis, an oasis in the desert. Uh, hydroponics, all of these new technologies were developed to make these sand dunes not only blossom, but I remember reading the articles that nearly 60% of Israel's organic exports, organic tomatoes, were exported from Gush Katif. And then, for reasons that are way too long and way too depressing and way too corrupt to get into, Israel decided to unilaterally disengage from Gaza, doing actual ethnic cleansing. Israel is constantly accused of ethnic cleansing. Constantly. There's only one time Israel was actually guilty of ethnic cleansing, and that is when they forcefully transferred out every Jew from Gaza. And... uh I was a part of that. I saw that. They ripped us. They even, I remember seeing with my eyes, they dug up the graves of the Jews that were murdered by the genocidal jihadists that they were giving Gaza to because otherwise the, they would have dug up the graves and desecrated the bodies. And I remember going down to Gaza um, two weeks before because they barricaded it, not wanting Jews from throughout the land to go to Gaza to prevent them to cause trouble. So we went there two weeks ahead of time. And I went there with Yishai and Malka and a bunch of friends and the Adler family. And, and we went down there and um, we did everything that we could to fight this horrible disengagement. Because not only was it the injustice of it was was insane and psychotic, but because it would obviously, obviously, obviously lead to exactly this scenario. So here's the, you know, the tail end of the video. If you want to see the whole video. Of the soldiers taking me out of Gaza, you can go and see it on YouTube. But this is, this is the end of the soldiers carrying me out of Gaza. Now, the, the soldiers begged me to walk out with them voluntarily, but I refused. I would not voluntarily walk out of the land of Israel and surrender it for delusional nothingness to genocidal jihadi terrorists. It was important for me, for my own soul, not to voluntarily just get up and walk out. And I think it was important for them to feel the pain of what they were doing. And uh, and it was difficult for me because, like, they're my brothers and I love them. And I love them even at that moment. There was never any anger. Mm, there was anger. There was never any hatred. There was never any hatred to them. And... um and many of them, by the way, did feel pain and suffered tremendous PTSD from what they were ordered to do to their brethren and to their land. And it was very difficult for me to be standing so vehemently against my fellow IDF soldiers. Because you have to understand that I was raised in Houston, Texas. And the word Sahal, Sava Haganali Israel, you know, the, the Israel Defense Forces was holy. The uniform of the Israeli army was holy. I remember my father coming to my 
uh, ceremony of getting my beret, and he was just weeping, seeing his son wear this holy, sanctified garment. And to stand against my fellow soldiers that way broke something inside of me. And in, in retrospect, I see that what it broke was the idol of the Israeli army that was in my own heart. Because I remember that before the disengagement, I was on a personal campaign, on a mission to advocate to my fellow soldiers to refuse orders. And even on the right wing, okay, this was like very controversial. This was very extreme. But to me, I, like when I see something that is just true in my heart, I don't know if it's objectively true, but if I have to follow that inner voice in my heart. And to me, that voice was not only that I should refuse orders, but that I should encourage others to refuse orders as well. Because there, there were those who were so uncomfortable with the thought of being ordered to ethnically cleanse their fellow Jews from the land of, of Israel, that they told their commanders that they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And many of them were just allowed to sit it out and to stay on base. They were allowed to do that. The army didn't want problems. And in my opinion, I was advocating very loudly that that was not enough. Because while their own personal conscience would be clean, they were still guilty. By not speaking up, by not fighting it, they were complicit. And I was telling them that they should go down to Gaza as ordered. And only at the very last moment, they should refuse orders in the loudest way possible and inspire their fellow soldiers to do the same. And there were those that did that. I remember there was a kid named Bieber that did that. His last name was Bieber. I forgot his first name. Um, and, uh, you know, he was put in jail, but he was released and whatever. Jail is not a big deal. In uh, To me, it's it's not that big a deal, like especially army jail. It's not that different than the, than the army itself. And, um, and so there were those that did, but clearly not enough to change what we know happened. And I remember speaking to some of the residents that were on the verge of having their farms destroyed and their home, homes turned over to the very jihadi terrorists that had been murderizing, murdering them and that had been um, terrorizing them for years. And it was so long ago, but I remember a conversation with someone who said that they, they told their own children not to refuse orders. They live there, right? And they weren't come, they just couldn't bring themselves to do it because, like I said, to them, it was the same to me. The IDF is the reason we're in the land of Israel. Without the IDF, if we refuse orders, then the fabric of the army falls apart and the IDF is sacrosanct. And, and that's when I remember feeling like there's an element of idolatry that had been infused in our relationship with the idea, IDF itself. And that doesn't mean the IDF is bad, God forbid. You know, but when you have an idol, which we all have, or idolatry is infused into some relationship that you have, even if it's a healthy and a good relationship. I know I have idols even now. I know that I do because I still have waves of fear that come over me. Um, but um, but it's important to recognize it and to seek them and to seek to what are the illusions and help break them because otherwise they will be broken over our own head because when you have an idol... It is very often that very idol that is used to break itself over your head. And it was that very sacred Israeli army that uprooted them from their home. The army is not Hashem. The army is not God. The army is a vehicle that Hashem has used and I truly believe will use to sanctify his great name. But it doesn't mean that everything that the Israeli army does is perfect and good and right because it's a vessel and it's a vehicle and it could be used for, for bad also. And and it was a disaster. It was a desecration of God's name. And I remember fighting with all of my heart not to hate my fellow Jews that I felt were so blind and so arrogant and so callous, you know, sitting in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv, uh, what I felt like was virtue signaling, saying, oh, yeah, we're going get, to get, get out of Gaza. It's not their families and their farms and their homes that were being uprooted and destroyed and given to the terrorists that had been picking them off one by one, sometimes entire families for years. You know, so that was hard for me. That was a big challenge. And uh, to see that this this beautiful, beautiful desert oasis of life and fertility that had been transformed from desert, empty, desolate dunes, just being given over to these terrorists who, by the way, you know, they tried to capitalize on on uh, the all of the exports and the vegetables. But for some reason, it was almost like the land itself just wasn't having it and they couldn't keep the worms out of it. everything fell apart on them. I, I still, I still remember, even now I remember seeing this very petition, this petition. It says here, the uh, disengagement from Gaza is good for security. And these were Bechirim officers, high ranking officers who 
signed this petition that getting out of Gaza would be good for security. And then, of course, when I'm on CNN or something, Cristiano Montpour says, well, 111 high-ranking officers said it's this appeal to authority thing, as opposed to actually arguing on the, the merits of it. Um, and so, you know, they just knew, they knew it was just so smart to transfer the Jewish people out of Gaza and to surrender it to genocidal Nazi jihadists. And, you know, sometimes as a, as a people, I was telling this to, to Jeremy today, I think that the greatest miracle is that we as a people exist, because if it was left up to us, we, we don't even have like the basic survival instinct to fight for our own survival. And sometimes I think that we as a people can be so smart that we travel the entire circuit and end up being the dumbest people on the planet. I remember that there was a time, I must have been 15, that I was trying to shoot a bottle with a BB gun right behind me. And I was holding up the, uh, a mirror and I was looking at this BB gun and I was trying to aim it, right? And I was looking in the mirror and literally... As I was about to pull the trigger, my friend Daniel Ismi, he said, Ari, you know, the gun is pointed right at your eye. And I was like, oh, I was literally about to shoot myself in the eyeball with a BB gun. That is what the disengagement felt like. All of these, the pragmatism, you know, because we're operating in a ecosystem where the hatred against us is so overwhelmingly irrational and Nazi-like that if we try to react and deal with this psychotically irrational ecosystem in a rational way we end up just about to point that gun right in our own eye that's what the disengagement felt we were so careful at, at considering the geopolitical consequences of this insanity that we're facing that we neglected to realize that we we're about to blow our eyeball out of our head and possibly kill ourselves and i remember everyone was saying you know if we leave now if we leave gaza now the whole world will see it and if they shoot missiles at us from there, oh, then we're going to have the right to to defend ourselves. Then we'll really lace into them. Then the world will definitely understand and the world will definitely be on our side. And, you know, it's just the same thinking again and again and again. And it's just so painful to see constantly thinking that the world are fair and honest arbiters, believing that there's anything that we can do to make the world see the obvious truth that the justice and goodness of Israel is so starkly contrasted with the forces of darkness and evil that we're against. How can the world not see that? You know, that's why I can't listen to people saying, we have these family WhatsApp group, and some of my family's like, oh, Israel, we're just so bad at Hasbara, you know, at, um, how do you say Hasbara in English? At defending ourselves in world media and making our case to the world. That's where we're lacking. We need to invest more money in that. And I just, I can't hear it anymore. Every war, everything, every all the time, it's the same thing. We need to have better Hasbara. We need to make a better case to the world. When we really make our case, then the world will be on our side and understand we're just not explaining ourselves well enough. You know, it's just like the only Hasbara we need is Hasbara that is not said in words, but in action. In responding to the Holocaust that we just endure, endured with righteous indignation and fury and relentless rage to put the fear of God into everyone that watched the gory, horrific details of rape and murder and they're salivating for more. Because they are. They are salivating for more. Why else would the world erupt in massive pro-Hamas rallies immediately after this Holocaust? The whole world is saying, gas the Jew. It's like... The, the 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 appetite has has started. These the, the uh, saliva is flowing. I, I don't understand why where this is coming from, but there's a spirit that is coming upon so much of the world, and um, you know it's not hopelessness that motivates these jihadists. I know that all these Israeli leftist Jews. I've always had this thing they're like they're so hopeless. That's why they're throwing stones at our cars at our children. That's why they're slaughtering families because they're hopeless that. They don't have their own state and they want their own state. Another Muslim. That's what it is. That, that is what's causing this. Gen it's so delusional. It's not hopelessness. It's hope. Hope that they can murder every single Jew and wipe Israel off the map. The masks are coming off. And why? Because they want to be able to be evil. And they don't want this nation, this goody, goody nation that goes to offer assistance to Iran and Turkey who call for our genocide when they have an earthquake. We're there with humanitarian. They don't want that stuff. 
It's weakness. And it's a testimony to something that they don't want to be a part of. That's what I think it is. But the masks are coming off. And now at least, at least we know what we're facing. Because I don't know if you've been seeing the, you know, insane and shameful spectacle. Uh, we've been talking about it already, of what's happening among the nations of the world and the Gentiles of the world. But the shameful spectacle of so much of the college-age American Jews that are doing their, their sit-ins. Um, th- this isn't only a, a product of, you know, America surrendering its universities to leftists decades ago and letting them wholesale brainwash the next generation, but it also comes from a very deep-rooted fear in the hearts of these students uh, that the hatred that they see towards their fellow Jews is in store for them as well. Maybe it's deep and subconscious and they don't recognize it. And they don't have the cur- they definitely don't have the courage of their character to stand up for it. So they delusionally believe that if they take the sides of their enemies against themselves, that they would be spared. You know, a, a student of history would know that, you know, just look back recently, recently in the scope of Jewish history, the Association of German National Jews. That was the name of the German Jewish organization during the early years of Nazi Germany that eventually came out in support of Adolf Hitler. In support of Adolf Hitler. According to Wikipedia, this was the definition. The goal of the association of the was the total assimilation of Jews into German Volksgemeinschaft, meaning like the German society. Self-eradication of Jewish identity and the expulsion from Germany of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. Nauman a man named Moses Nauman, I believe his name is Moses Nauman, his founder, was especially opposed to Zionists and Eastern European Jews. He considered the former, meaning Zionists, a threat to Jewish integration and carriers of a racist ideology serving British imperial purposes. He saw the the latter as racially and spiritually inferior. Okay, like the Jews of America that routinely vote against Israel, that are marching against Israel now with Hamas. It, that, that's what it comes from. Here's what Max Nauman, the founder uh, of this association of, of German Jewish immigrants, this is what he said. He said, we have always held the well-being of the German people and the fatherland, to which we feel inextricably linked above our own well-being. Thus, we greeted the results of January 1933, even though it has brought uh, hardship for us personally. Those, those Jews ended up in the same concentration camps, in the same gas chambers as every other Jew. You know, a weak Israel makes every Jew in the world feel weak. It makes every Jew in the world feel vulnerable. A weak Israel emboldens the powers of evil in the world. Tabitha, before I go to this Al Jazeera, do you have that video I sent of this sit-in? I didn't actually enter it in there. If you don't, it's okay. Okay, Tabitha, you can end it there. Okay, this is the these this organization called If Not Now of these Jews from these campuses across America that went in and did a sit-in in the Congress, and they're sitting there on the floor in Congress reading the names of these supposed Gazan uh, Hamasnikim. And I say Hamas because I don't want to say innocent civilians in Gaza, because they're not. You know, they're not innocent civilians. They're simply not. They're, I mean, I just thinking about, um, Yishai was telling me, and I saw, I heard the, the, the audio recording of a phone call of one of these Hamasnikim calling his mother from the home of one of the families that he killed. He's like, my hands are drenched in blood. I've killed 10. I just needed to call you to share with you. The, the father's like, I'm so proud. The mother's like, oh, kill more, kill more. This is the mothers. This is the civilians. This is who they are. And those are the names they're reading, not the Jewish babies that have been decapitated and the mothers and the fathers and the children that have been burned. They're reading the names of supposed civilians. The reason I say so is because I'm sure I'm sure that there are those people in Gaza that have died. Of course there are. That's what happens when you put your headquarters under a hospital and under a school and try to maximize civilian casualties, whatever civilian means. So, of course, but I don't trust the Hamas medical examiners, whatever. You know, but they do, they do, and they're reading those names on the floor in Congress. 
And it's really, it's not only, it's because it's coming from a deep place of fear. I don't hate them. I'm not angry at them. I feel bad for them because not only they're obviously mentally unwell, but they are exactly that Jew that is so riddled with self-hatred and fear that they're sitting there on the side of Hamas. Okay, sorry guys, I'm getting a little bit uh, wrapped up here. But but the point is that a weak Israel makes every Jew in the world weak and, and every God-fearing, Bible-believing person in the world is weakened when there's a weak Israel. And, and it makes everybody feel vulnerable and it emboldens the powers of evil in the world. I want you to see this interview by um, the, the head of Hamas. I don't even want to say his name may be erased from the world. But this is an interview of him from on Al Jazeera. أن دخول حزب الله يحدث فارقا حقيقيا ونحن نتمنى أن تحصل هذه الخطوة لكن هم أصحاب القرار هم منذ بداية هذا العدوان الصهيوني وهذه الحرب حرب الإبادة يشاغلون العدو في جبهة الشمال الفلسطيني ويشتبكون معه وهناك يعني معارك تسخن وتصعد باستمرار لكن لم تتطور بعد إلى دخول واسع وحرب مفتوحة تشتت تركيز العدو وتجعله يتحرك على جبهتين أو أكثر نحن ما زلنا نطالب الأمة نطالب حزب الله ونطالب أصدقانا وأمتنا ونريد حراك في الجاليات الغربية والعربية العربية في الغرب وتنسيق مع قوة كبرى بحجم الصين وروسيا لمعلوماتك روسيا استفادت مما لا نصرفنا الأمريكان عنهم وعن أوكرانيا الصين كذلك رأوا نموذج مبهر الروس قالون ما جرى في 7 أكتوبر سيدرس في العلم العسكرية الصينيون يفكرون بخطوة كيف يفعلون مع تايوان ما فعلته كتائب القسام 7 أكتوبر العرب يقدمون دروس للعالم You know, there, there's some sort of thing. Jews are such projectors. We project our values on the world and we insist unreasonably that the world is like us. So when, when I say we should go in and if, if they have their their base, their headquarters of Hamas under the hospital, we should send a bunker buster under that hospital. That's exactly what we should do. And all of the innocents, if there are any innocents there, it's on Hamas. And I say that and Jews are like, what would the world say? That would be so immoral. They would attack us. Did you hear what he was saying? The world doesn't care about morality. They care about strength, period. Countries don't have friends. They have interests. And so if we have a moral, strong, God-fearing country that's strong, then that will bring godliness into the world. And if we're weak or perceived as weak, then all of a sudden China's like, oh, we could do what Hamas did. We could do that to Taiwan. And Russia's going to go with Iran. And the axis is forming. And we see it happening. And the world is becoming bold in their evil. And the masks are coming off. And they look at Jerusalem. And they salivate like a, like a wolf staring at a flock of sheep. But the great fatal mistake that they're making is that they have yet to encounter the shepherd of that flock. The shepherd of the flock of Israel, who will absolutely pour out his wrath upon them and humble them like they've never been humbled before. And that is what's going to happen. Do not worry. Do not worry. Do not be afraid. Be strong and be resolute. Because while it's painful to see this terrible desecration of God's name that we're seeing right now, and we have to fight against it with everything that we have, we have to fight to sanctify God's name. This is all part of his plan. Because the darkness will very soon turn to light and the desecration will turn into the greatest sanctification that we've ever seen. That's my belief. That's where I'm holding. That is just, I, I can't shake it. I can't shake it. I know that I said I'm not doing the Mashiach is coming soon thing. But that was before this war. I believe that we are absolutely not only on the verge, on the precipice, but we're already in it. It's already happening. It's already unfolding. And uh, and so I want to just read a little bit from the 51st chapter of the book of Isaiah. I wanted to read the whole chapter, but Jeremy just came back and we want to take questions and engage with you and hear what you have to say. So uh, so, uh, so I'm just going to read to you just the, the very end here. You afflicted and drunk, but not with wine. Thus says Hashem and Hashem, the, the Lord of hosts who pleads the, pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink of it, but I will put it into the hand of those who have afflicted you, 
who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. And you've laid your body like the ground and as the street, those who walk over you right now, right? Even the bravest of us have moments of fear. It's part of what we need to be going through now. The cup of fear is still in our hands. Okay, we can try our best to navigate and channel that fear to fear of Hashem, but the world is big and the world is very convincing. And the world is very real. And so the 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 cup of fear is in our hand, but Hashem is about to take that out and put it in the hands of our enemies. And we are going to see it with our own eyes. And with that, allow me to bless all of you and then to open up to questions and, and hearing from you. So allow me to bless of you, all of you with the uh, blessing of Aaron, the high priest that the priests of Israel give to the nation of Israel every day. And as you know, I am not a descendant from Aaron. I am not a priest in Israel, but as the Torah tells us, we are a nation of priests and the day will soon come when we're able to bless the entire world. May Hashem bless you and protect you, and may He shine His countenance and His light upon you, and may He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.